1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Uh, My name is Ruditya. I'm your host for this episode. And today we are joined by Dr. Carly Shimizu to discuss her monograph, um, Overseas Shinto Shrines, Religion, Secularity, and the Japanese Empire. Uh, Dr. Shimizu is a postdoctoral researcher at Hokkaido University. Um, But before we get into the book, perhaps we can start with a little self-introduction from you, for for, for our listeners who maybe are not familiar with your, your work.
0: Uh, yeah. Um. Well, first, uh, thank you so much Rereita, for uh, having me on this podcast. And um, yeah, so as you said, I'm Carly uh, Shimizu, and I'm currently a postdoctoral research uh, at Hokkaido University. Um, so my main research is about overseas Shinto shrines, so that Shinto shrines located outside of the Japanese home islands. So that I sort of um define the home islands as the pre-Meiji restoration borders so that my research does include looking at shrines in places like Hokkaido and Okinawa but also in Japanese former colonies like Korea and Taiwan as well as non-Japanese territories like Hawaii and the US Um, I'm particularly interested in shrines relation to the question of religion and secularism Uh, so my research is really involved around that but um, because this Overseas shrines were also closely connected to Japanese imperialism. I'm also, my my research is also really focused on the multi-ethnic question, um, because an empire is by its nature multi-ethnic. So how did shrines deal with different ethnicities, um, particularly within Japanese, the Japanese empire? Um, great. So, yeah, that, thank
1: you. Um, well, actually, yeah, sorry. Um... <laughs> no, no. Okay, that's it. Yeah, um, yeah. We'll we'll get into um, so sort of this this term the the home islands actually um, a bit more later. So oh, that's um, good. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for sort of sharing that. Um, yeah. So I mean, in, in this book, you you sort of you explore as you've mentioned how sort of secularity and sort of religion are constructed in imperial Japan, and how sort of that Japanese secularity um, was sort of reinterpreted and understood through um, various shinto shrines outside of Japan. Um, but before yeah. we sort of dive into the book, can you perhaps share how this project came to be? What got you interested in this topic?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, well, I've been interested in, like, Shinto shrines for quite a while, even before I entered graduate school. Um, particularly, like, even when I was younger, um, you could... I'm from Hawaii, and so in Hawaii, we have some Shinto shrines, mm-hmm. um, although I had never been to one when I was little, Um And there just wasn't any information about them, about Shinto shrines or about, you know, um, Shinto more in generally. Like you look Mm -hmm. on the internet, and this was back in the day before the internet was a huge thing it is now. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. there's just a lack of information. So when I did uh, enter into graduate school, I knew I wanted to do something about Shinto shrines. Um, And then because, as I said before, I'm from Hawaii, and then I was living in Hokkaido, both of these are sort of on the border of um, Japan and America uh, respectively. Um, So I really want to look at Shinto shrines in these sort of like marginal spaces, so to speak. Um, So that's where my interest came from. And then I was really trying to grapple with trying to define what is Shinto. It's such a controversial question. Mm -hmm. And what is religion, which is also a really controversial question. and how shrines related to religion Um, particularly in the era that i study um, the official line by the japanese government is that shrines were not religion they were secular sites and then post-war uh the the american occupation um sort of blamed some of the war guilt on shinto and saying it was a state religion Mm. um and so like the problem with shinto shrines was not Shinto itself, but the fact that it was a state religion. So if you could separate shrines from the state, then they would be okay. And um, so I just really just wanted to delve into that question um, in my research. And that's kind of what led to this book. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> from Hawaii and Hokkaido, um, I expanded out into the other areas where Japan had influence. Um, so again, it's it's colonies, also it's puppet states like uh, Manchukuo on the Chinese mainland. Um, not technically a colony, but treated sort of si- similar to it. And then also where there were major Japanese migrant communities. So that's Hawaii, uh, the west coast of the US, and then also Brazil. Um, so that's, yeah, that's yeah. kind of, I mm-hmm. just like, um, I just really wanted to do something about uh, overseas Shinto shrines because it was such an understudied topic. In summary,
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Thank you. Um, okay, uh, I I, I want to start with something that uh, I think is central to your book, and and this um, has uh, sort of appeared, you know, before when when you you, when you just mentioned um, sort of explained about um, how you got interested. Um, and yeah. please do feel free to sort of correct me if if I'm wrong. But you're, you're sort of you're mm-hmm. looking at the process of sort of how secularity was sort of established as an important element of the Japanese Empire. Um, and and yeah, so you're, yeah. you know, obviously you're engaging with sort of other scholars like um, Jason Joseph from Storm, um, yeah. many Sumai Juniji who are sort of also interested in sort of this, this idea of like, well, well what is religion and what is secularity yeah. and how sort of the Japanese the Empire during the sort of Meiji period sort of create that, you know, those, those sort of ideas. Can you perhaps provide sort of a, a brief um, explanation of, of what this secularity meant in sort of Imperial Japan? <laughs> And how is it different from yeah, sort of other secularities, right? And then it's 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 a difficult question, I know, but yeah, maybe for
0: <laughs> But I'll do my best to explain it as, as clearly as I can. Um so basically, um the way I define so there's a the question of secularism and secularization. And earlier research basically argued that as the world becomes um like as the world develops, this sort of like progressive idea of history, like the world develops and becomes better, Um, uh, religion loses its hold, like superstitious religion loses Mm. its hold on society, and societies become more secular. And then um, generally the example of this was in Europe where church attendance has continually fallen and people, and like atheism, and people stop believing in God and stuff um, has grown in popularity, and then America was often used as an outlier because people in America, despite it being a you know first world nation, modern liberal democracy, um, were still pretty religious. Like they went to church and professed faith in Christianity and so on. Um, and then, sort of, I mean, America was held up as the exception. But then many scholars looked at. A bunch of other countries, particularly non Western countries, and America's not the exception. Like Europe was the exception. And then, um, so they're kind of this, like the secularization hypothesis was sort of criticized a lot. And so, from that discussion, the idea of uh, like different types of secularism existing in different countries or different areas Mm. was born, so to speak, or was developed. Um, So in the West, we have a sort of liberal secularism and it's heavily influenced by its Christian roots. Um, So it has certain ideas about time and space and history and um, all of that sort of thing. But then in other countries, they're going to have different ideas about secularism that are going to be influenced by their own heritage, for example, like a Confucian heritage or a Buddhist heritage um, or in Japan, a Shinto heritage. Um, And so we can't talk about there being just one secularism or one secularity. We have to see secularism as a political project that nation states actually built and like deliberately uh, tried to instill into their population as a part of the modern mindset and depending on that country and their various heritages, um, it's going to be different. You know, it's going to differ. And like, the, they, they all have like similarities, right? Like they're all dealing mm-hmm. with like time and space and obviously yeah. Asian countries were deeply influenced by Western colonialism and so on. But um, we can't just assume that liberal secularism as we see in the West is the universal truth for the entire world and that we naturally progress towards this more enlightened view of the world. Um, So that's sort of my probably still confusing um, explanation of secularism.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The, the so-called myth of disenchantment, right? Like that we are in sort of a different sort of area um, era and that, that after modernity um, all these sort of beliefs of, of like, various different types of well not just magic but like various different types of practices and rituals are suddenly gone and replaced by science Uh, yeah it's it's
0: happen it's it's a sort of yeah it's it's just that's that's yeah that's the thing. it's like that
1: yeah Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um, for sure. Um yeah, it's a it's a very hot topic in religious studies. Uh, you. Yeah, yeah, okay, no, yeah, it's a thank really you.
0: interesting topic and it definitely needs more research and I hope I hope this book contributes to it, but it's it's a really broad topic that definitely needs more. If anyone's listening wants to do research in the area. <laughs>
1: you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, thank you so much. Um yeah. Okay. <laughs> um so yeah, before we sort of go uh, deeper in the book, just sort of going back to um, the introduction, right? Sort of this term, the the home islands yeah. that you use a lot um, in in the book. Uh, do you mind explaining? Well, you've 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 sort of mentioned what what this sort of um, I guess what what you mean by this um, earlier, but why why did you choose to sort of use this term instead of well, other like you know the the Japanese islands or something like that, but.
0: Oh, home islands. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I debated about it, to be honest. Um, so I I live in Hokkaido and even today in Hokkaido, when we talk about Honshu or Kyushu or Shikoku, we refer to it as Naichi. So that's like the inner, the inner land. Mm. And, um, that term comes from when Hokkaido was settled by Japanese migrants up here. Um, because Hokkaido was not a part of the inner land, it was a sort of like colony or a sort of like frontier land. And so again, it's it's still used today here in Hokkaido, it's not used by people living in Naichi, so to speak. Um, so I was trying to find a uh, translation for that term, and I settled on home islands, um, which sort of draws parallels to British imperialism, I suppose. Um, because those that's like the main, the home, the home islands of Japan, included only those three islands. And then you had a uh, Gaichi, like the outer lands, um, which referred to the colonies. So that'd be like Taiwan and Korea and so on. Um, so I felt it was really important to get into the mindset of people during this period that I'm mm-hmm. studying. Um, in that they don't see Hokkaido as an integral part of Japan yet. It's still a frontier land and same with Okinawa, although I don't talk a lot about Okinawa for various reasons um, in my book. But, um, but yeah, so that's, that's why I chose to use basically the historical terminology um, rather than adopt a post-war view of Japan, which sees Hokkaido as an integral part of Japan. Like that was not how it was seen before the war. <laughs>
1: yeah yeah definitely interesting um okay uh well that was all chapter one actually um and and in chapter two (laughs) yeah for for, um, those who have not read the book (laughs) um in (laughs) um, in in chapter two um you sort of you you discuss um koshihara jingu as a sort of um, well a a a, um a case study um and and one of the most visible institutions of promoting well this Version of Japanese secularity, uh, yeah, particularly yeah. you sort of you you focus on three aspects of um, the shrine that sort of help in this mm. effort, um, right? Um, historical, sort of modern, and public. Uh, can you talk <laughs> a little bit more about this sort of why these three sort of particular aspects, um, and why are they important in sort of understanding, um, you know, this this type of secularity?
0: Yeah, so I really wanted to look at what separates uh, like a legally secular site and a legally religious site. Um, because I'm arguing basically um, that shrines in this period were treated as secular sites. They weren't, they weren't secretly religious sites that the government was just saying they were secular. The government Mm -hmm. actually treated them as secular sites. So what differentiates those two spheres is secular sites are for the public, like anyone should be able to visit them just like a library or city hall or a, you know, a public sports stadium or public park. While religious sites are private, so only members are really supposed to be visiting them. Um, and this is actually, you can even see this today, um, with the exception of really famous Buddhist temples, which anyone can go visit. Generally, a Buddhist temple is meant for its, like, member families. Like, I can't just go to a Buddhist temple at in my small little town and, like, sightsee. That would be... <laughs> That would not be appropriate because it's a private site. But shrines, I can do that because shrines are public sites. Mm. Um, And then another element besides public um, was also that they were historical sites. Um, So particularly within the home island, so like at Kashi Harajingu, um, shrines were founded at sites which were connected or had some sort of significance to a historical figure. Um, During this period, uh, kami, by the the Japanese government, kami were seen as real historical figures. So like Amaterasu is not like a mythical sun goddess. That's not how they talk about her. They talk about her as the imperial ancestress. She is the real, like, literal ancestress of the imperial family. Um, And so, again, with Kashyaru Jingu, which venerates uh, Emperor Jimu. So nowadays, most people probably would say that he doesn't exist. Or if he does exist, he's kind of like a composite of several different, possibly historical people. Like there was no guy literally named Emperor Jimu is what most scholars would say nowadays. But during this period, they're like, no, Emperor Jimu, he was a real person. Here are like the historical records. This is literally the place he built his palace. And, um, And so the whole goal of the shrine is to commemorate a historical event and a historical person. Um, And again, this contrast in with uh, religious sites, which are more focused on like transcendent figures that didn't physically walk in the land. Um, And then uh, finally about like modern. So um, again, it has to do with this older idea of like religion being sort of antiquated or something that will be eventually evolved out of. Um, So religion is the sort of thing that a lot of people like secularists and atheists um, were like, oh, it's a, just like an old superstition that we don't need anymore. Um, but if they looked at shrines like that, that would be very bad because shrines fold, were the basis of the Japanese state's legitimacy. Um, so shrines had to also be a part of modern Japan. And uh, in my book, I, I look at only modern Japanese shrines. So shrines built after uh, the Meiji restoration, um, all the shrines I look at um, are new, basically, relatively new. Um, And um, so although they're doing sort of ancient rites, uh, like ancient Shinto rites, they were also integrating uh, modern technology and modern elements to it. Um, The Meiji government, they really wanted to modernize Japan. Like that was part, that was a major part of the big project. And Shinto shrines were part of this modernization effort. So they weren't meant to be like um, a site where uh how can I say it um that's very like antiquated and only in the past they're meant to be a part of the modern day world with trains and electricity and that sort of thing um so I I I basically chose these three elements because I felt they were very important for differentiating um or for uh showing how shrines were treated as secular sites just like public parks and that sort of thing, in comparison to religious sites during this period, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, definitely, mm-hmm. very interesting. Um, okay, uh, in addition yeah. to sort of those three aspects, um, in, in sort of many of your um, case studies, you would include a discussion on space and time as well, um, and yeah, how yeah. those two sort of help, yeah, in sort of constructing well, sort of a, a reality, right, of sort of this job. Jap- a reality built upon this concept of Japanese secularity that is um, antagonistic to Western secularities. Um, yeah. Can you sort of maybe uh, go go through sort of this misunderstanding this or, or um, why this is sort of important?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I I sort of identify um, space, time, and ethics as the three elements of secularity that I look at in this book. Um, obviously, I'm, there's secularity is a huge topic so there are other elements as well, but those are like the three major ones that I look at. And um, so in particular, you would think that space and time, like these are just scientific facts, right? Like we can just like use science and understand them. Yeah. And that's yeah. true, whether you're in Japan or in you know Europe. And that's not actually true. Like our conceptions of space and time, and of course ethics as well, um, depend on, are culturally influenced, we can say. So in uh, like the maps are a really easy example. So in if you grow up in America or Europe, um, if you look at the world map in your classroom, you know, England is in the center of the world map, right? And you can clearly see um, America, like the American continents on one side, Europe, (laughs) On sort of in the center, and then we have like the rest of Asia and like I'm from mm-hmm. Hawaii, so Hawaii is often like in a little box put outside <laughs> because yeah. no one cares about Hawaii, I mean in the West, you know um but in Japan, instead of having that like written or that uh, like european centric idea of a world map, they sort of turned it around and put Japan in the center Japan and the <laughs> Pacific <laughs> Ocean in the center. Um, And then, you know, it was um, the American continents and Europe, which are pushed to the side or cut, cut, you know, cut in a weird place. Mm -hmm. Um, So how we envision um, space depends on how we're taught as kids, basically. And the same thing with the number of continents, you would think that the number of continents would be a scientific fact, right? Like when I was a kid in America, I learned that there were seven continents, but if you actually look at the map, you're like, actually not really, because Europe is not its own continent. <laughs> like, wait, what? <laughs> you know? Um, and so Japan didn't adopt that seven continent system because it's obviously like eurocentric. Um, and so they made their own version, which again, really emphasized Japan and the Pacific. It gave like the Pacific region as its own. Own section it's not a continent literally but its own section in the idea of continents and so on and again it's the same thing with time like when does time start like when is the start of history um in the west we learn it as uh, like ad or ce um like common era but the reason we choose that date is because that's when jesus was traditionally born so that's clearly Christian centric, whether you say after death or common era, it's still Christian centric and Japan doesn't want to use that calendar because Christianity really isn't that connected to the Japanese state. So they chose the, uh, the start of Jimu's reign, of Emperor Jimu's reign, um, right. Which started at Kashihara, um, as the start of history. And before that, you know, you start measuring backwards. So I, I wanted to use Kashi Jingu as an example to show how um, the Japanese state deliberately tried to create this different sense of space and time and, and ethics as well um, To that was similar to the ideas that they're importing for the West, but deliberately said like, no, no, we didn't start, like our history doesn't start when Jesus was born. It starts yeah. even before that. Like we're even older when Emperor Jimu started his empire or whatever. So there's sort of... Um, trying to one-up the Eurocentricity of the, you know, Westerners who are introducing the idea.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's interesting, because um, I guess if, if you want to sort of, if you want to promote a particular narrative, it's not complete if you don't create a system that supports that, right, all the way to like, you know, space and time and, and sort of history and your understanding of what is real and what's, you know, what's made, what's history and what's not. Yeah, these Um, really
0: fundamental, these fundamental parts of how we conceive reality. Like when I was a little kid, I never thought about, you know, when does history start or like why we have daylight saving time in some places and not in others, you (laughs) know, like these things we (laughs) take for granted as children. But um, when we start thinking critically about it, these things are deeply influenced by the sort of, nationalism the sort of secularism that we grew up in
1: <laughs> yeah yeah um definitely um uh, thank you uh okay um in in chapter three um sort of you you know you you your, your focus sort of shifts up to hokkaido um, yeah, yeah. and sapporo jinja um sort of yeah. had similar properties with sort of kashihara jingu in the sense that you know it's also a modern um sort of public sort of historical site how was it different, though, from, sort of, Kashi Harajingu? Um, particularly, sort of, because uh, at the time, sort of, Hokkaido was not, as you mentioned, right? it's not Japan in the strictest sense, and, and then yes. there's trying to incorporate, sort of, Hokkaido into the Japanese Empire. Um, yeah, I mean, if you can, sort of, maybe talk a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah, so, the difference, so, yeah, I sort of used Kashi Jingu as this example of this is what's happening with modern shrines in the Home Islands. And then I want to compare and contrast that with what's happening at shrines outside of the home islands. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, Sapporo Jinja is my sort of first example outside of the Japanese home islands. And um, the, the, the big difference or like the most obvious difference is um, this shrine is founded um, by the Meiji government um, and it's dedicated to the three pioneer kami. So these are three kami that are kind of combined into one seat. So they're also kind of one kami. Um, yeah. And um, two of them are a historical, historical, they would call them historical. They like got old classical kami from the Japanese yeah. classics that are associated with sort of making the land. And then one of them is Okunitama. And he is like literally the land of Hokkaido itself as imperial land so this this kami the th- these three kami, pioneer kami are really um meant to help develop the land like this sort of virgin land uh, of course there were Ainu people in there but the image in that point was Hokkaido as this empty virgin wilderness um yeah. uh, into a proper part of Japanese imperial land like a productive part of Japanese imperial land and um it went through quite a few stages. it was because f- it was founded right after the Meiji Restoration. Um, so it went through a stage where it was promoting the great uh, like the great teachings um, and then the Japanese government abandoned the great teachings campaign or the great Creation campaign and um, then they had to stop. Promoting those teachings because that was too religious-like, um, mm. and also they had to stop doing funerals because that was too religious-like, um, and uh, it became it was became firmly located in the, to the secular sphere like that. Um, but what is really important about Sapporo Jinja is that it sort of became the model for other colonies' major shrines. So it was sort of like Japan's first modern japan's first overseas shinto shrine mm-hmm. at, that was sort of transplanted to other places like karafuto and taiwan
1: okay yeah interesting um speaking <laughs> of colonies um in the next chapter you 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 yeah. know you you sort of um, you you go to taiwan um, and you take the readers to taiwan <laughs> yeah. and um taiwan uh, i actually think is a very interesting sort of case because again, just like you know, uh, the, the shrines instead of the home islands instead of in Hokkaido, they, they still maintain sort of um, this characteristic as you know modern, secular, and, and sort of public. But with, yeah. with Taiwan, um, what I find sort of particularly interesting is, is Shinto has sort of reached beyond shrines um, with the yeah. Takasago, for example. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Can you maybe perhaps talk a little bit more about this? What what happens? Um, what happened instead sort of the, the the Shinto shrines in, in sort of Taiwan?
0: Yeah, so with Taiwan's main shrine, Taiwan Jinja, um, at the very end it became Taiwan Jingu, um, but uh, it, it was basically a, a copy of Sapporo Jinja. So it enshrined the three pioneer kami, and then they also added uh, Prince Yoshihisa, who um, was a member of the Japanese imperial family who died of malaria in Taiwan um, as part of the pacification campaign. But um, but it was actually the second shrine founded in Taiwan. The first shrine to be founded in Taiwan after Japan took it over as a colony okay. was um, Kaizan Jinja, which is really fascinating because this was actually a Chinese ritual site, um, mm. and the it enshrines uh, Koshinga, who is um who or who was I should say a half Japanese, half Chinese like merchant pirate. And he was loyal to the, the Ming dynasty in China, so he was mainly Chinese. But um, but basically the Japanese governor of, governor of Tainan, when the, the new colonial governor, he came and he was like, we should make this site into a proper Shinto shrine. And hmm. so they added Shinto elements but they kept a lot of the Chinese elements. So um, there's this great video of its annual festival, and it's got like Chinese style palaquins bouncing up and down and like Chinese style flags and great, that great Taoist music and everything, in addition to the more somber Shento style ritual. Um, likewise, they kept the building, like they didn't, tear down the building and build a new shrine or anything like that. They kept the Chinese style building and they just added Shinto elements like a purification basin and a tori. Like a tori, um, So here Shinto is not, it's not exclusive to home island style customs or home island kami. Like yeah. Taiwanese kami are seen as becoming Japanese kami because Taiwanese subjects, Taiwanese people became Japanese. So in the same way, Taiwanese comedy became Japanese kami. and um, they also wanted to do this. Uh, wanted to use Shinto to help uh, sort of civilize. That's so kind. Of, I mean, again, it's terrible to say it like that, but that was the, the mindset yeah. back then um, to like civilize the Takasago, like the indigenous um, Taiwanese people. And again, they weren't so concerned about uh, assimil. Yeah, like they weren't so concerned about assimilating them, so to speak, but more just like civilizing them so they could keep some of their older customs like they could keep their their older rituals as long as they weren't uh considered beyond the pale so head hunting like that was a little bit too much like <laughs> they're like you can't do that anymore however other things like uh, indigenous clothing or indigenous dancing they're like yeah you can do that as a shrine and in fact some. People, some uh, Japanese policemen would advocate for that because they felt if they allowed the Takasago and um, well the indigenous people to keep some of their customs, then they're more likely to embrace the Japan the selected Japanese customs that they were trying to get them to embrace. So um, there, there's sort of an image of Shinto shrines in the Japanese Empire as being really focused on. Um, assimilating the like the imperial subjects, so like, oh, you have to be just like Japanese people, but yeah. actually, we don't see that at shrines. Like, there were Japanese officials, of course, strongly advocating for that and persecution of indigenous customs and so on. I'm not saying yeah. that that didn't happen, because it did. But in the case of shrines specifically, um, a lot of Shintoists overseas were really happy to include and sort of subsume, so they're treating them as second class, but they're saying they're still permissible as a part of a sort of like Taiwanese-Japanese identity. Um, and that's that's something that actually surprised me, because when I went into the research, I had that sort of older view of Shinto Shrines as being sort of one-way assimilation pressure. But that's that's not really what was happening in Taiwan and other places.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. Because I mean, the the entire sort of system, um, you know, constructed through sort of the shrines, sort this understanding of like space and time that you know we were just talking about like um, a, few, a few minutes ago, that you know mainly applied to Japanese people, right? Now you you know you have like this this shrine outside. Well, then yeah. these people they have to be Japanese as well for us to be yeah. able to sort of apply the system to them. And then I guess we, yeah, we have yeah. all these um, yeah sort of just negotiations between you know local customs local traditions and then what um you know what what sort of the the, the Japanese government sort of um, brought through, th- through the shrines
0: I think something that like we can say is that like to be Japanese wasn't to be like a home islander during this period to be mm-hmm. Japanese was sort of like this ideal that home islanders could more easily be like that but even home islanders like so like Like ethnic Japanese people in the home islands um, even they had to do some work to become good Japanese citizens Mm -hmm. so just because you assimilate to home island customs that doesn't make you a good Japanese citizen like being a Japanese citizen was something um, not limited to just the home islands and so especially um, with the Takasago who were really great um, help in World War II and so on um, like a lot of them were really praised for being like ideal Japanese citizens, not, be- not because they assimilated, because they didn't, but because you know they gave their life for the Japanese emperor. Um, and well, yeah, anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Quite <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um, <laughs> very, very, interesting. Uh, okay, um, yeah, thank you. Um, and so, in the sort of the last chapter, um, you you yeah. yeah, well, you take the readers to Hawaii. Um, yeah. which in, in many ways, you know, um, was different to other case studies. And and, and, and Hawaii, too, was, was really interesting for me because, I remember, you you gave a talk about this sort of particular, um, sort of the Hawaii case <laughs> um, at Kida. And back then, I didn't yeah. even know that there um, are sort of, you know, outside of Japan. And I, I was yeah, just like, oh, this is, this is a, you know, it's a very interesting sort of idea that I just completely <laughs> um, sort of missed, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. So Not while... Yeah, I'm oh, sorry. Um well, oh, anyway, well, yeah, sort of... go on. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, because the, the, the shrines, you know, they they were sort of considered as secular sites, sort of sort of maintaining the same understanding with, with sort of central shrines and sort of the home islands. But because they're not located in Japan and not in, in sort of any, you know, in sort of any of the colonies, um this led to sort of some I guess discrepancy with sort of their legal status, right? With sort of yes. um the case of the um, Hawaii Taisha, for example. Um, yeah. yeah do, do you mind sort of going over some of these issues that um, shrines in sort of Hawaii face um, because they're not in Japan anymore? Um, yeah. 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 Yes. So Hawaii
0: is a really interesting case study because you have um, a majority Japanese population there. So. Um, there's over 40% of the population in Hawaii is Jap- ethnic Japanese. Some of them are uh, Japanese-Americans, so dual citizens. Um, but uh, the ruling class, so to speak, are white Americans. Hawaii is an American colony at this point, a territory. Um, but they only make up a very small percentage of the population. And then the rest of the people there are different ethnicities, including Native Hawaiians, but also yeah. Chinese and Portuguese and so on. Um, so, but anyway, there's this sort of a strong Japanese element to like social into uh, society in Hawaii. Um, however, again, because the, the the ruling class, so to speak, is uh, white Americans. Like they're living under a sort of legal American secularism and Shinto in from like in the liberal secularism of that period, it's either a superstition, like what weird gods and and like weird rituals and weird dress and whatever. Um, So that, which is, you know, very negative image or else it's a religion. Um, And so because America values religious freedom, um, a lot like being a religion in Hawaii was would give shrines, various rights and privileges um not just tax benefits or whatever but also you know protection under the law so a lot of shrines even though even as they adopted this sort of japanese secular conception of shrines they also registered as religious organizations and um i one of the examples that I give my book, which I think is is a really nice encapsulated example, is a business card of one of the shrine priests or ritualists. Yeah. And um, it's in Japanese and English. And in Japanese, he has two titles. He's um, the head of a, like a sect Shinto branch. And... Um, he's also like the head ritualist of the shrine. So he's serving both as a religious Shinto functionary and also as a secular Shinto functionary. But in the English part, he's only got one title, reverend, so a religious title. So we have these sort of two more complex conceptions in the Japanese language, but when it gets translated into English, um, it sort of gets collapsed into a single religious category. Um, So we can see this sort of translation of the Japanese secular sphere being translated into the American religious sphere. Um, We did. uh, Like, I also want to talk about how particularly in the 1940s, when Japanese in Hawaii were really concerned about proving their loyalty to America um, due to the war tensions. you did see some of this, like uh, some Shinto, secular Shinto rites being transferred to American figures. So, um, like school children being asked to bow before the portrait of George Washington and George Washington and King Kamehameha. So, these are the founders of America and the Kingdom of Hawaii, respectively, being yeah. venerated as kami. Um, and so We also see some of this, again, secular Shinto being applied to the American state. But um, even more than that, uh, Shinto was sort of translated into the American religious sphere. And that became really important post-war, which I don't know if you want to talk about it later or not. But in in the post-war, the American government confiscated all the Shinto shrines in Hawaii because they're like, these are... These are secular Shinto sites. So these are basically enemy territory, like from the government. And the shrines had to um, go to court and argue like, no, no, we're not secular sites. We're religious sites. We've always been religious sites. We have these connections, the sect Shinto, which is religious Shinto. And they won that court battle. And so that's why not most of them, but some shrines, were able to revive post-war and get their land back from the the government, the American government.
1: Yeah, yeah, f- fantastic. Uh, that actually connects really well to um, my next question, <laughs> yeah. um, which is sort of uh, probably also going to be our final one. Um, yes, yeah, so just to sort of close off our, our sort of conversation, Um hmm. I was wondering if you can maybe talk about the, the legacy of these shrines, right. Um, I'm, I'm more on the sort of contemporary side. So uh, sort of very interested in um, sort of the, I guess, you know, what happens now with sort of these overseas shrines, Um, especially, you know, in in sort of the popular imagination, you know, Shinto has always been understood as something that is specific to Japan. And, you know, obviously through Mm -hmm. your sort of book and through your case studies, you've you've demonstrated how there were attempts to sort of create an image of Shinto um, that is um, not just modern and secular, but also um, universal to a certain extent, um, with, Uh, you know, Hawaii and Taiwan and all that, right? Um, So... Yeah, you mentioned a little bit about what, what happened in Hawaii post-war. Um uh w- yeah, what about sort of in, in sort of Taiwan or in sort of um Manchukuo or in sort of any of these other um sort of overseas shrines? Um what what happened after um yeah, after the war?
0: Yeah, so it's it's really interesting because so after the war, um, right, there was this idea of state Shinto being guilty for Japan's war aggression. And um And so there was a decision whether to just abolish all of Shinto shrines, like close them down, can't can't do them anymore. Or else they could be revived, not revived, but um, continue existence as religious sites. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the American occupation decided that shrines can be religious sites um, as they just have to cut all ties with the government. And so... If we have shrines overseas like shouldn't they be able to continue as religious sites as well like what about like in Hawaii and so on mm-hmm. um, and what we find is that shrines within Japan's post-war borders so that's the home islands and Okinawa and yeah. um, Hokkaido shrines were able to easily become religious sites like even Hokkaido Gokuku Jinja and, and uh, Yasukuni Jinja who are yeah. were, which are really connected to like war, related rituals, they were allowed to become religious sites, private religious sites. Um, However, all the shrines overseas weren't allowed to become religious sites. Um, For example, in Korea, there were actually um, people uh, in Korea who wanted to turn uh, one of the shrines, uh, Keijo Jinja, into a religious site, but they were like, no. you're not allowed to do that. We're going to tear it down. Um, and mm-hmm. so they tore it down. Um, the Japanese government tore it down. And the American government gave permission for the Japanese government to tear it down. Um, and because these were considered secular sites, these lands and assets were handed over to the new government. So in the case of Korea, the, the new South Korean government in Taiwan, it was uh, the Republic of China. And um, again, Taiwan is a really interesting example um, because... The Republic of China, it didn't have a lot of money. So it actually used these shrines, like the buildings and everything. They didn't tear them down. They just used them for new purposes. And uh, a lot of them became what they call martyr shrines. So basically war memorials for Chinese war dead rather mm. than Japanese war dead. Yeah. Um, and they also used them for other things like schools and uh, like become a library and so on and went through various iterations and so on um and well in comparison korea generally the korean government just tore everything down um and didn't reuse the sites um much but um yeah but in other cases well Anyway, well, I won't go into Montekuo because I don't think we have time for that. That's also <laughs> a really, really interesting, unique uh, study, but please read my book if you haven't yet. Um,
1: but, yes, um, please do. <laughs> <yeah. And laughs> I'm listening. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. But in, in comparison, then in Hawaii, um, again, the shrines were confiscated as secular sites, but then a court battle allowed shrines to regain that land. Um, so um, some shrines about... Mm, well, I often say eight, but I don't. Some of them are not really active anymore. It's it's a really difficult situation in Hawaii, like financially for shrines. Um, and then, uh, and actually, Brazil is also a really interesting case because there weren't many shrines built in Brazil pre-war because the Japanese government prohibited it because they didn't want to get on the bad side of the Catholic society. Um, but post-war, a lot of the Japanese migrants started building a bunch of Shinto shrines, but they tended to be more religious in character than we saw in the pre-war. So it's it's quite interesting because in Brazil, it's really the post-war that you see the a boom in shrine building, so to speak. Hmm. Yeah.
1: So, so yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> I hope I answered your question there.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's it's really interesting because I mean, you know from from sort of um sort of our conversation instead sort of from your, your your book i think it really shows how you know um in sort of all these sort of shrines in pre-war times just cuz how closely connected they um were to imperial japan sometimes they maintain maybe more than one sort of conception of sort of secularity right and then depending on the site they are in people sort of interpret them in different ways understood them in different ways and once yeah, the, yeah. you know, once, once the Japanese empire, um, you know, fall, oh, that just completely, um, you know, it was just completely starting to replace with something else. Um, interesting. Or turning to something else, I guess. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much for sort of this enlightened conversation. I'm afraid we've taken uh, way too much of your time. Uh, before we say <laughs> goodbye, um, yeah, maybe can you sort of um, share what project you're currently um, working on?
0: yeah yeah so i mean even pre just before you mentioned how like with the fall with with war with japan's losing the war uh, the situation completely changed for overseas shrines and um so that's kind of what i'm interested in now so i've again in this book i've really talked about all all of the shinto shrines across the japanese sphere um and up until the The end of the war, but um, from now I want to I want to look more into uh, former Shinto shrines, so shrine sites um, and how they were used and how people interpret them. Um, Again, to use Taiwan, I've talked about Taiwan a lot in this interview, but um, so you have sort of um, uh, contest. uh, Really, the sites are often contested. So for for uh, the Republic of China, so people who support the sort of one China idea and see Taiwan as a a Chinese place, um, Shinto shrine sites tend to be seen as a symbol of like a past embarrassment, like the past uh, um, colonialism and like a great embarrassment. Um, But for people who advocate for a more independent um, Taiwan, um, they tend to see Shinto shrines as a part of Japan, as a part of Taiwan's multicultural past. So Taiwan has been colonized by many people, so like um, like the Dutch and the Spanish and the Chinese and, and Japan, of course. Um, so they see shrines as just one part of a multi-ethnic pasts. So I'm very interested in how shrine sites have sort of um, been used in different contested, Narratives about national heritage. And um, I'm also interested in post-war overseas shrines as well. Um, it's really interesting to see how post-war shrines pick up different narratives from the past. So some of them tend to have a more religious uh narrative, while others tend to be more on the secular side. Um, and so I, I'd be really interested in seeing how Shinto Shrines founded post-war also dealt with this connection between religion and secularism. So, but again, I'm just starting my research into those areas, so hopefully some good stuff will come out of that. <laughs>
1: yeah yeah i mean that that definitely sounds like a a a very interesting project um yeah for for uh, for those interested in learning more about sort of overseas chintra shrines please do check out the book um and please do look forward to dr samiz's next project um and i will see you next time bye bye
0: thank you so much for having me